When you have lived the life I've lived, when you've loved and suffered and been madly happy and desperately sad, well, that's when you realize you'll never be able to set it all down. Maybe you'd rather die first. Francis Ethel Gum was born on June 10th, 1922 in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, the youngest daughter of vaudevillians Ethel Marion and Francis Avent Gum. Her mother began grooming her for the stage at just two years old when she was part of a dance act called the Gum Sisters, alongside her older sisters Mary Jane Gum and Virginia, Virginia Gum. But Mom knew her daughter would be something special, so she took young Francis out of the act and traveled with her across the country, performing solo acts in nightclubs, cabarets, and theaters. Young Francis did not have a happy childhood. It was demanding, thanks to her mother's obsession with making her a star and her father's closeted homosexuality. Things stayed pretty much like this until 1935, when Francis Gum was signed onto a contract with MGM Studios by studio mogul Louis B. Mayer after he, after he heard her sing. The one stipulation, Francis Gum was forced to adopt a stage name, and that name was Judy Garland. I'm Connor Izagari. And I'm Austin Johnson. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Weird Shit Wednesday, listeners. This is episode 61 of the Filmgasm podcast and our 11th Weird Shit Wednesday. Going forward, the Weird Shit Wednesdays are going to be a lot more sporadic and random. This was our last scheduled episode before we start implementing a new format, but more on that at the end of the show. Right now, we're going to tell you about one of the most tragic figures ever to grace the silver screen, Academy Award nominee Judy Garland. Love, loss, success, failure, and a barbiturate overdose before her 50th birthday. Today's filmgasm is as depressing as last week's was disturbing, so buckle up. (laughs) No rewind this week. Not surprising as all that seems to be happening in the movie world for the past week is cancellations, delays, and postponements. More on that towards the end of the show. Anything you want to bring to the table, partner? (laughs) Be safe out there, folks. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Obviously, this is not a fun time. Uh, No. This is affecting everybody at every single level, you know? Yeah. No one no one is, uh, quote-unquote, safe from what's going on, you know? Regrettably, we spent a good chunk of last week's episode kind of making light of this whole thing, and that was back before it really started, like, damaging people's lives in a financial situation. And, uh, yeah, we just... Now we're a little worried. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Uh, oh, boy, um... I think, you know, everybody in our society, including myself, like, owes themselves and the people that are around, like, an apology because, yeah, we haven't taken it seriously enough. Yeah. And obviously are behind um, from what experts are saying, and we are apparently two weeks behind where we should be with how we're operating on things, you know, social distancing and staying away from, you know, groups of people. You know, there's stuff happening where there's, like, you know, four or five nights ago, there was, like, a concert in denver colorado with twenty thousand people there stuff like that it's happening in our culture stuff that i've said out loud to people like again joking about it at first what a terrible way to process that you know yeah and uh that's how we tend to do things is like we're scared of something or don't know how we don't have an answer we don't have information about it we like get scared and you know laugh it off or whatever that's just not how we should respond and i think it's obviously our duty now to move forward and be smart about what we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, s- hang out with your family as much as you can, you know, stay inside, you know, as much as you can watch movies, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course it sucks that your everybody's life is 
on hold. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's is kind of halted, and you know, there's people in obviously in certain uh, countries, you know, all around the world that uh, it's affected even greater. Like I said, we're apparently weeks behind, but you know, Connor and I are not experts on the situation, of course. It doesn't seem like anyone is. No, that's the weird <laughs> thing about this. It's new and yeah. it's freaky. And yeah. I've never seen a situation where the movie theaters are closed. Yeah. The restaurants are closing. It's crazy, man. It's it's weird. It yeah. feels it's unsettling everywhere. Yeah. And yeah, I just I hope I really hope we start moving in a positive direction with this, but honestly, I don't see it happening anytime soon. So, yeah, man. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah. It, there's no, it, yeah, no one can be like, it's, you know, there's no way to be like, it's going to be okay. Because it's not going to be okay for a while. You know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. There's giant, massive things being pushed back. And the Euro, the Euro 2020 giant, massive soccer tournament gets pushed a whole year. Stuff like this, you know, big things, massive things, things that are going to shift, you know, because we have this schedule, you know, and it gets shifted. It affects everything. So. By default, the people who live in that schedule are going to be affected, and that's us. So I think, you know, it's going to be cool here on Filmgasm for us to have a place in this, and that is just to kind of give entertainment. Yeah. And to just give out some content. So People need that right now. Yeah, so, I, you know, we have a good, uh, we're going to be talking about Judy Garland here today, and I think that's a, it's going to be a good episode, and we've got some fun stuff coming on the weekend for you guys. So Yeah, with no movie like no yeah. more releases for a while. We're yeah. going to have to start getting creative for, uh, which is no problem for Connor and I. That's, yeah. that's, that's how we have kind of made filmgasm work is, is being creative and adapting, you know, when we oh, can. Yeah. So, uh, that's what we'll continue doing on the podcast, meaning there will still be content left and right. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and stuff that's, you know, written by of course, Josh and Caleb and it's gonna be a lot of fun. And, uh, of course, again, you, Connor will explain later on that, you know, Adjustments to the format, and whatnot, but uh, yeah, let's let's dive into this episode, huh? Yeah, let's do it. So, before we get started on Judy Garland, as always, we invite any listeners to reach out to us and comment if there's any particular film you were hoping we'd cover today. Yes, you can leave a comment on YouTube or send us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email us at filmgasm at gmail.com and we'll get back to you ASAP and consider doing a full episode on your suggestion. Yep. No, no promises we'll do an episode, but we will definitely watch it and review it on the website. For sure. And as always, we won't be discussing the films themselves that much. We will mostly be focusing on Garland's performance in the films. Yes. So before this episode, what did you know about Judy Garland? Legend. Yeah. That was the word, you know, that's like, she's one of those, like, <clears throat> like the me. famous line from Sandlot, heroes get remembered, but legends never die. <laughs> Judy Garland's one of those, like, I don't know, I... As a kid, like, I don't know what year she died. Is she still alive? You know, that sort of thing. You're just kind of, she's just timeless. She's this, and you kind of think of her in that one state where she's, you know, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, she's, she'll be Dorothy forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, even, you know, I didn't see Stars Born until we did this, but that kind of, that's like what you think of the singing and the multi talented, you know, doing all kinds of things. Like, one of the first females to just have it all, like have it all in, in the entertainment industry. She just had everything, you know, she could dance, she could sing. She, she had was... everything, but she had nothing. Exactly. Such that's a tragic that's why story. It's, that's why she's so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But I did not know a lot about her actual work. 
No, man. I knew nothing, actually. You know, of course, Wizard of Oz. Of course, you see that when you're a kid. And then I watched it again on some drugs <laughs> later on in life. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. And then I watched it again, of course, now. And I was like, I like this movie a lot. You know, Wizard of Oz, yeah. there's a reason it's a staple <laughs> in, like, you know, American film. Uh, but these other movies that we chose, it's my first time for all of them. Me too. Uh, we were also going to be talking about Renee Zellweger's performance as Judy. Yes. Obviously, that was the first time I saw that. I've only seen it once, and that was, you know, right after it came out of theaters. I watched it online. Uh, I don't know much about her, man. Her, I'm, like, excited to hear you explain some things to me because I've really just watched her performances. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know you picked these movies, did some research on the movies you picked, so do you want to talk about the movies first of which ones you picked? Sure, yeah. So the four films we picked from Judy Garland's career are The Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, A Star is Born, and Judgment at Nuremberg. Yes. Specifically because we think these represent four very distinct uh, phases of her career. Yeah, range, yeah. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz was the movie that turned her into a superstar. Meet Me in St. Louis was at the height of her musical fame. Yeah. Star is Born was her comeback movie that showed the world that she could act, and Judgment at Nuremberg was kind of her farewell to film. And, uh... She's done a lot of movies, but honestly, a lot of them bleed together. A lot of them are B musicals and yeah. paycheck paycheck gigs with Mickey Rooney and Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. Just doing and, the Hollywood thing. Yeah. yeah. And we learned our lesson with John Wayne. Shit gets repetitive if you just, you know, keep watching the same movie. Yeah. And you get frustrated. Yeah. You get frustrated yeah. and it bogs down the episode. And we didn't want to do that. We well, wanted to Well, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to bring up someone that was that has been in like has been in recent in light as Someone had a movie come out as Ben Affleck. Yeah. A guy like that who's obviously more modern than Judy Judy Garland or, you know, Gene Kelly or these these people who are like in a bunch of movies that kind of bleed together. You know, Ben Affleck's a guy I feel like a lot of his career is just like, whoa, you know, it just happened. And then you're like, you look at it, and you're like, oh, there's like ten movies he was in, but <clears> I <throat> haven't seen them, or if I have, they're not very good. You know, that's yeah. that sort of thing. And back then it was like they all did that. They all worked constantly because they had to. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? So people would film 10 movies a year. Yeah, it's more rare to have like, 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 like Ryan Gosling, or like Jake Gyllenhaal. They're doing a movie like every two years, you know? Yeah. They're coming out doing their job, doing it well, you know, bam. And then they, then they retreat for a minute and then come back and do it again, you know? And that's awesome. I love that. But it's also, there's something about like that. I respect a lot about someone who has like just a crazy, crazy filmography, you know? Yeah. Like a Ben Affleck or a Matt Damon. You just shoot, shoot, shoot. Well, it reminds shoot, shoot. you that this is a job. Yeah. This is, you know, they get paid by the movie. Yeah, and then when, you, when you're talking about the 50s and 60s, this is, it's even more serious than everyone was two movies, three movies a year. You know, that's how it went, you know? Yeah, man. You had your movie that came out in the spring, and then in the summer, and then in the fall. Yeah, all filmed on the same back lot uh-huh. at MGM Studios, Hollywood was Universal just, Hollywood Studios. Hollywood was a machine. Oh, yeah. Machine. It was like time. one hit for every 10 movies made. It was uh-huh. crazy. Yeah. And, so, you know, if the, and some people like just rely on, you know, going to see Judy, going yeah. to see Judy Garland in whatever movie it was that she was in or whatever actor it may be. You know, she was certainly a favorite. At yeah. The time. Yeah. So her movies tended to do fine, tended to do well because she's in them. See, you'd think that, but a lot of her career was, was how bombed. many, how many 
actual films like was she in do you know uh off the top of my head no i don't i know it was a significant number i'll i'll, I'll look up the actual actual number so yeah. so what how many movies did well like box office wise uh not a lot the not wizard lot. of oz did not do well I, I knew that i knew that yeah. i knew that was kind of like a late yeah it gained all its money back from uh later releases a star is born did not do well and it was very meet me in st louis was a box office hit yes that was yes, big for yes. her but a lot of them were. Uh, they found a. They found an audience later. They found a life of their own later, and that's pretty cool that she has that. I mean, we're talking about her now. That's pretty amazing. She never. She never left the mind of the moviegoer. Oh no! Oh she's, no! Yeah, she's a pioneer. Oh, there's forty movies she was in. Yeah, uh, you know, I remind you that she passed away at age forty-seven. So that's yeah. just you know uncanny. We talked about um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who died at a similar age. Yeah, I think he was forty-six, something like that. Yeah, and he had he had a similar, you know. Yeah, there's just there's just people who work, you know, <laughs> and churn them out. They have a certain certain range, and she had hers, you know, just in the forties. <laughs> well, there's certain there's actors who love it, and there's actors who have to do it. Yes, there you go. That's a good I way would of think it. Judy is one of those who had to do it. I think at first she loved it, but then. She, oh, yeah. she needed money. Yeah. And you know, to pay for all those divorces. Like it was yeah, insane. Yeah. We'll get into it. Yeah. So let's yeah. Uh Judy Garland was signed with MGM in 1935 at the age of 13. She was four foot eleven and a half inches tall, and the studio didn't consider her as pretty as some of the other female movie stars at the time, like Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, or Lana Turner. They considered her too young to be a child star, but too old for adult roles. Or strike that, reverse it. Thank yeah, you. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because of this, she became self-conscious about her appearance, and uh, studio mogul Louis B. Mayer didn't help as he kept calling her his, quote, little hunchback. Louis B. Mayer was a piece of shit. Sounds like it. That man destroyed Judy Garland. Uh, yes, pretty much verbally abused her her entire, like, during her uh, teen years mm-hmm. by just telling her, you know, you're worthless, you're no good. During the 30s. So act for me, or I'm throwing you out of here. Like, unbelievable. And her parents were fine with this. Her parents were, you know, trying to make her their daughter famous because they were vaudevillians who, grew, you know, she grew up in the theater. This was all she ever knew. Yeah. She was never, like, from a, the age of, like, you know, five or six years old, she was touring in a, like, she was, you know, basically the Jackson 5 of the Crazy, time. Man. It's insane. She never had a, ch- a, a childhood, a normal childhood. So no wonder she grew up with such problems. Her father died of meningitis in November of 1935, which did not help her confidence. And the studio eventually struck gold when they cast her opposite Mickey Rooney in what were referred to as backyard musicals. These were just, you know, the ones that they churned them out to get an audience. They tested the new talent with these movies. They, uh, Rooney and Garland were supporting characters in 1937's Thoroughbreds Don't or Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, and then Garland was cast in the Hardy Family series of films with Rooney in 1938's Love Finds Andy Hardy, and later in 1940's Andy Hardy Meets Debutante, and 1941's Life Begins for Andy Hardy. And Rooney was Andy Hardy, and these are just basically, you know, oh, how's this young whippersnapper gonna find love today? Yep, it's ridiculous. Basic as hell. Yeah. And it was here that Garland began her lifelong issue with substance abuse. She and the other performers, including Mickey Rooney, were given amphetamines to stay awake 
and keep up with the demanding schedule of making one film after another. She was 13, and she got hooked on amphetamines. See, those days, most Hollywood productions were made in the studio backlot alongside dozens of other pictures. The machine never stopped, so the actors couldn't either. Garland was also given barbiturates to help her sleep. Jeez, man. Uppers during the day, downers at night. Jesus Christ. At 13. Yeah. That would be like, to compare, you know, I think it's, I'm a hands-on kind of person. If you compared Millie Bobby Brown, the star of Stranger Things, when that show started, she was 13. Yeah. That would be her on set, you know, going through this, just so we could have Stranger Things. Unbelievable. That kind of stuff, you know, not cool. And this regular schedule of uppers and downers at, oh, 15 at this time. Led oh, to, yeah. oh, all right. <laughs> Better. Yeah. Once you get past 14, I think it's okay to give kids drugs that they don't know. What 15-year-old what doesn't have a problem with uppers and downers? Come on, right? come on. Come on. We've all been there. Sack up. Come on. Jesus. <laughs> and this led to lifelong struggles with addiction. Garland herself will later resent MGM and say that the studio robbed her of her youth. Damn right they did. No kidding. Mickey Rooney, however, would deny this, say that MGM never gave them any drugs, and that Garland was responsible for her own actions. So I I don't know why Mickey Rooney would blatantly like defend MGM like that. I mean, it's pretty well documented that they they fucked her up. And others. Like, oh, this yeah, was not, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. This was not a rare occurrence. They did this to everybody. The studio demanded Garland diet constantly, despite her being healthy. They would often serve her a bowl of soup and a plate of lettuce in place of regular meals, despite her wanting actual food. Because the studio would constantly say she was worthless, overweight, and demanded she keep up with the other actors, Garland developed a serious complex and a confidence problem. Yeah. She was plagued with self-doubt and constantly needed reassurance that she was talented, attractive, and loved. Jesus. That's so sad. Ridiculous. God. And her big break came in 1939 when she was cast as Dorothy Gale in our first film of the episode, The Wizard of Oz. She got the role after Louis B. Mayer failed to get Shirley Temple and Deanna Durbin. So Judy Garland was the third choice, which is unbelievable now. Basically, like they wanted Shirley Temple. They couldn't get her. They wanted Deanna Durbin. So Louis's like, well, I got this. I got this fat junkie. Let's use her. Gosh, what an asshole. Ugh. Dorothy is the role she would forever be associated with. The Wizard of Oz was plagued with all sorts of insane production problems. It's worthy of its own episode, without a doubt. 100%, yeah. <laughs> to summarize, director Victor Fleming was the fifth director brought on after production had already begun. The previous four were fired randomly throughout production. Actress Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch, was accidentally set on fire and severely burned when a trap door failed to open during a stunt. Garland herself was repeatedly abused on set, both verbally and physically, and it's a miracle the film was made at all. I recall one story where Judy could not cry on command, so Victor Fleming straight up slapped her, ran the camera, and she had no problem crying after that. It's amazing what we used to consider okay to do in Hollywood. Like acceptable for show business. Yeah, Yeah. man. Yeah. To children. It's show business. Oh, my God. For what? For a whimsical movie about a magical world? You're going to just destroy this girl? Yeah, apparently. My God. The Wizard of Oz, if you've been living under a rock your entire life, tells the story of a young Kansas farm girl named Dorothy. Wait, wait. 
Do you think there's anybody listening that actually like actually hasn't seen Wizard of Oz? You never know. There's got there's somebody out there. That's one of those I feel like I feel like there are actually very few. I say I say that a lot, like loosely, like, oh, that's like a must see, you know. See, we as movie fans think that. Yeah, yeah, but not even Wizard of Oz. I don't even think Wizard of Oz is like, oh my god, you have got to see this movie, you know? Yeah. I think it's awesome. But I feel like by default, like everybody's just seen it. Or like <laughs> they know they know exactly what you're talking about when you say it, I guess is my point. It's true. There's some movies like Cla- like Gone with the Wind, some people don't even know what to think when you say that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, oh, what is that actually about? There's plenty of people who just don't really, or they're like, is that, or they get it confused with another, like one of those old classics, you know? Yeah. But Wizard of Oz, <laughs> you know, right when you hear that title, exactly what's going on. We're off to see the wizard. You know what's happening. It is one of those movies that everybody's grown up with. Yeah. And, and even if you haven't seen it, you're going to lie that, and say you have. <laughs> Because you don't want to be the one person. I hate when people do that. Yeah. Just stack up. Admit you haven't seen yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like, like, you're like, oh, man, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind, man. You know? Like, that's all right. I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. I hear that Wind. all the time. I hear that all the time. Yeah. But not, not with this one. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> because you can get away with not, not seeing it. You can get away with it in conversation. Because it's like, <laughs> ah. I know what it's about, you know? I've seen all the, yeah. Dorothy, Scarecrow, Wicked Witch. We're off to see I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Color, all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God. <laughs> so, <Great. laughs> so Dorothy ends up in a tornado, gets uh, her house, lands in the magical land of Oz. And once she gets there, she befriends Magical Scarecrow, Tin Man, Cowardly Lion to get to the Emerald City, where she tries to convince the all-powerful Wizard of Oz to get her home. Fucking nutty plot. It's weird. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it makes sense. It just works. This it movie does. should have been a, a complete failure. But yeah, yeah, for yeah. some reason, I don't know what makes it work, but I think it's her. It, it, it is. It is. After this time, like now watching it, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. She's actually, you know, that fucking captivating. You know? She really is. So the film co-stars Frank Morgan, Ray Bolger, Burt Lair, Jack Haley, Billy Burke, and Margaret Hamilton. It was based on the children's novel by L. Frank Baum. It won two Oscars, Best Original Score for Herbert Stothart and Best Original Song for the song that Judy Garland would sing for the rest of her life, Over the Rainbow. It was also nominated for four more Oscars, Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Visual Effects. It has an IMDb score of 8.0, Rotten Tomatoes score of 98%. I give it a 9 Beautiful movie. Yeah, I give it an eight. You know, yeah, it, it is gorgeous. And I... It's a fun watch. I, yeah, I definitely, I encourage people to rewatch it, like, just with an open mind. Yeah. You know? The Wizard you haven't of seen Oz. it since you were a kid. Yeah, just watch it with an open mind. It's one of the most celebrated family films ever made, and Garland, of course, plays Dorothy, our hero. And she's fantastic. She's, yeah, she yes. shows in her big break that she's going to be a star. And in, Yes, indeed. <laughs> and she's got an amazing voice. It she was, truly does. We've yeah, we're gonna talk more about her voice because I think we like differ on something that'll be interesting to talk about later. But she is fucking powerful. Like she really is. Shake like shakes the TV. They were gonna <laughs> cut over the rainbow. Somebody fought for it. What? I don't remember who it was, but somebody they they were gonna cut I, it for time. I sing that like all the time. It's just a beautiful song. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even sing the whole song. I just do that note. You know, like. <laughs> All the time. I can't imagine this movie without that song. 
I can't imagine this movie not being a part of our culture. It was her signature tune. Yeah. When she would do her tour, this was like her closer. This was her big song. You want to talk about the color at all? How important, oh, yeah. How important that was at the time? That was unbelievable. <laughs> this was at a time when color film was not that mainstream. It was yeah. expensive. It wasn't... It was weird for audiences to see yeah. things in color, which is weird considering... Technicola. You know, it's not like everybody had black and white vision outside the movies. I mean, things were in color for everybody, but on the yeah. on the screen, that was weird. Yeah, I love that. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and to yeah, that's great. God, I love that. <laughs> and, and to and to watch a movie like Wizard of Oz that obviously has so much going for it culturally for you know decades now, multiple multiple decades. To really watch it and understand what was going on at the time with with film, with actual film, what was going on at the time. Yeah. Movies could not con- con- contrast colors that well. They just no. couldn't do it. Yeah. But this movie like went out on a limb and, you know, was really trying to push the boundaries and it fucking worked. <laughs> 1939, the combined success of The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind are a probably the biggest reason of why color film became mainstream it's probably the most important year yeah yeah probably in in american cinema yeah i would i would say so <laughs> because of those two yeah those two happening in yeah just the, the the pure like shock and beauty of it and how it still lasts today that sort of a thing it's still important now as like a artifact almost my grandpa was telling me that uh he didn't re- he didn't realize the wizard of oz was a color movie because he watched it for the first time in a black and white TV set. Oh and man. He didn't understand the significance the until he saw it later. It was like, oh okay. That looked pretty good. Yep. That's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. God. So the Wizard of Oz propelled Garland to superstardom. At the twelfth Academy Awards in nineteen forty, the twelfth, Garland received her only Oscar an Academy Juvenile Award for her performances in 1939. This award used to be given to actors under the age of 18, and Garland was the fourth to ever receive it and one of only 12 to get one until it was discontinued. Which is good. I think that undermines performances from talented underage actors. Yeah, most certainly. I hate awards like that. There's still one... It's like a participation trophy. <laughs> there's still one... There's I can't remember which organization in, in, in England that uses uses this award that's like best new, I don't know, newcomer or whatever. And it's like age 18 to 21. I'm like, what? Best Tom Holland year. got it a couple years in a row. And I'm like, that's just fucking dumb. You best know? try. <laughs> Here you go. Everybody gets one. Yeah, I don't like that either. Yeah, yeah. That's not, yeah. Well, that's like for, that's more for like, to me, age, age stuff is more for like physical competition. Like obviously a 35-year-old man and a 12-year-old boy like shouldn't be in the same basketball league. Yeah. But when it comes to art, there's no judging no. what was like more impactful for somebody. Oh, know? totally. Like like that's a that's an interesting like what's a powerful kid like, you know, a child performance that you're just like I can't, you know. And obviously The Shining, obviously. Yeah. We're both rocked by that performance, little Danny. Um damn. Wish I had something prepped. This is an interesting, yeah. That's a very good question. You know, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is a great example. A, contains a classic, yeah. Um, I would say honestly, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, Margaret O'Brien. There you she go. Was really good. There you go. That's a good shout. 
Um, she actually got one of these too. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the movie, but I know that Anna Paquin won an Oscar at 12 years old for the piano. Yes. That must have been significant. Yeah, yeah. So there's... Natalie Portman and Leon. Yep, very good. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool to see, see people like working at that <laughs> age. And uh, I cannot remember the name. Beast of the Southern Wild. Yeah, I don't know how to say her name, but I know you're talking brilliant. about Brilliant. Contains a brilliant performance, yeah. W- wasn't Leo underage in Gilbert Grape? Yeah, like 14? There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. You can't, you can't, yeah, you can't be narrow-minded and, like, close that off. It's got to be all in the same. Oh, yeah. All in the same boat. For sure, I'm man. I'm glad we're on the same page in that. There shouldn't be age. Hell. There shouldn't be, like, tiers of giving awards for acting. Like, Dude, The yeah. Omen. Straight up. Oh, there you go. Yeah, what the <laughs> hell? Yeah, why we have thought of, like, horror? Yeah, more kids. Yeah. Uh, the Exorcist. Good God. Yeah, Linda Blair. Without a doubt. Yeah, so, man. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely got to recognize children. Ah. Joshua Jackson and the Mighty Ducks. Come on. <laughs> what, the hell are we, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> In 1940, Garland began a romance with band leader Artie Shaw, but she was devastated when he later eloped with Lana Turner. She then began, uh, she then began dating musician David Rose, who proposed to her on her 18th birthday. The studio intervened because he was still married at the time <laughs> to actress and singer Martha Ray. They agreed to wait until the divorce was final, and once it went through, Garland married David Rose, her first husband. They were divorced three years later. She tended to find identity in marriage. She globbed on to any man who showed her the slightest bit of affection because she had a confidence problem. And uh, I wonder why. Yeah. Jesus Christ, maybe it's all the drugs. Uh yeah. They were being fed to her from a young age, yeah. All those drugs being fed to Louis B. Mayer's little hunchback. <laughs> God. Motherfucker. That same year, in 1944, Garland starred in our next film, Meet Me in St. Louis, an adaptation of the novel by Sally Benson that tells the story of a loving family in St. Louis that learns they're moving to New York and must make the most of their remaining time in the town they call home. The film also stars Margaret O'Brien, Mary Astor, Lucille Bremer, Leon Ames, Tom Drake, Marjorie Maine, Harry Davenport, Joan Carroll, and Henry H. Daniels Jr. It was nominated for four Oscars, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score for George Stoll, Best Cinematography, and Best Original Song for The Trolley Song, one of three songs that Garland would add to her repertoire along with The Boy Next Door and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Along with that, Margaret O'Brien was awarded an Academy Juvenile Award for her performance. IMDb score 7.6, Rotten Tomatoes score of 100%. I give it an 8. It's a cute movie. 8 for me as well, yes. You still live in St. Louis. Did you know that? I, yeah, I remember you told me about that. I lived that. there for a year, yes. Yeah, so. Is it this whimsical? Huh? Is, is St. Louis this whimsical? Not at all. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> St. Louis is a fascinating city, yeah. Fascinating. I could talk about it all day, yeah. Oh, man. Garland plays Esther Smith, an upbeat young woman who is in love with her neighbor and doesn't want to leave her home. And this movie is pretty generic, but it's endearing, mostly because of her. Yes, again, the color is just absolutely gorgeous in this movie. The costumes are awesome. This is what you want out of like a old style film, you know, when you're just trying to like watch something that has that sort of style and has the music and the score is great. And the costume design is awesome. Well, this came out in the middle of World War II, so people wanted something upbeat. Exactly, exactly. And, And color is a part of that, especially during this time. Big time. <clears throat> I, I'm glad you chose this one because, like you said, I think a lot of, during this this era, a lot of them bleed together. She's churning a lot of them out. 
but from everything I've read, this is the this is the one you should watch. Yeah, of all of those, <laughs> this is the one that stands out. I, I again, yeah, I give it an eight. I did, there's nothing I didn't like about it, other than the obvious fact that I know going into it, this isn't totally up my up my alley. Yeah, fair I enough. know that going in. Fair I know enough. that going into all these Judy Judy Garland movies that they're not. There's one that surprised me a lot. We'll talk about that at the end. I. I just, this is the one that I felt the most like, okay, that's what I expected. That sort of thing. Without a doubt, yeah. The other ones all surprised me. Uh, Wizard of Oz surprised me because I, re-watching it, you always are like, oh man, you know, something kind of touches you, you know, something new. But this is the one where I was like, that's what I, in my mind for the past 12 years, when people were like, Judy Garland, that's like, that's what I thought about. <laughs> Was that movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. <laughs> it's fantastic. But yeah, I, I, and I do, you know, I do love that, um, you know, yeah, I lived in St. Louis for a year. Well, not in St. Louis. I lived west of St. Louis in O'Fallon, St. Uh, St. Charles area, a little, yeah, a little west of you know the actual city. But gorgeous, gorgeous city, gorgeous movie. Yes, indeed. And uh, there's this one scene in the movie where Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien do this uh, this dance. Yes, that's uh, a little jig. Yeah, it's weird. It's uh, a little, little offensive, but... Uh, yeah, no, no kidding, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, their chemistry was just so sweet yeah. that it's tough to, to ignore it, you know? It's tough to just write it off. Because I think they all had a lot of fun making this one. Oh, yeah, clearly. And uh, like you said, people needed this. I didn't know that Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas came out of this movie. Neither did I, until which, I watched it. Yeah, pretty amazing. These are those things I look like look around. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> this this is the origin, you know? And I'm like, I, nobody really cares, but you know, I do. <laughs> Connor probably does. I care a lot. So that makes two of us, Connor. <laughs> I don't know how much I agree with that 100 percent, though. That's that's a bit steep. What for Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's I mean. That's that's a reach. I mean, it's always a reach to call a movie perfect, right? Yes. You know what I mean? Even even like if you or I give a movie a ten, it's like, well, I'm I, I have my own bias in it, of course. That's cause personal because it's my ten. Yeah. But yeah, hundred percent is yeah. That's like Toy Story stuff. <laughs> Holy shit! That's reaching Godfather two territory. You know? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is interesting. Garland would have a brief affair with legendary filmmaker Orson Welles. What? While he was married to Rita Hayworth. I didn't know that. It ended in 1945 and they remained friends. Orson Welles, dude. Oh, what, yeah. Dude could. Dirty dog. Dude was a player. Dirty dog. Rita Hayworth and Judy Garland at the same time. Well, have you seen uh, The Stranger? <laughs> I have not. Have you seen The Third Man? I've only seen Citizen Kane. Yeah, you know, that guy, yeah. He's a. If he's anything like his characters, yeah, he is a. Uh, He's a lion son of a bitch. Dude was a beefy piece of meat. I don't know how he was raking in that, that he, kind of play. Yeah, dude. He yeah. He's an interesting looking guy, too. You know, like dude's just, intimidating just his, as hell. Yeah, his 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 facial structure, dude his big old like eyes. A goblin. Like he's yeah, he's an aggressive he's got an aggressive face. But God, I love his input into film. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You, you you gotta watch The Stranger. I want to. Holy piss. <laughs> the movie's good, man. That's one of those first timers where I was like, that's like a, that's where I felt like 10 out of 10, like, holy shit, man. You know, you feel that sometimes. Yeah, man. Love when it happens with old movies. It's oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's a beautiful feeling. And it happened to me later on. I'm excited to get there. Yeah. 
1945, Garland entered into a relationship with Vincent Minnelli, director God. of Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They married later that year and had one child, future Academy Award winner Liza Minnelli. Yes. Who pretty much adopted her mother's uh, stage persona and kind of continued the legacy. Yeah. Garland and Minnelli divorced in 1951. Around this time, Garland had a nervous breakdown and was admitted to a mental hospital. She completed filming on 1947's The Pirate and soon after attempted suicide. That's good. Let's make sure we finish the film, guys. Uh, so she, you know. Oh, yeah. MGM was constantly on her ass about, finish, about contracts and finishing things on time, yeah. regardless of her mental health or her mental stability. They didn't so give a fuck. Up, man. As long as they got their money. As long as they got their film. When The Pirate was released in 1948, it failed to make a profit. And she followed that with Easter Parade in 1948, her first film with Fred Astaire, and her biggest hit ever at MGM. Yes. MGM saw gold with the pairing of Garland and Astaire and immediately signed them on for another picture. Garland was taking barbiturates regularly along with morphine pills, and she was developing a drinking problem on top of that. Not a good combo. Morphine, barbiturates, and booze. Might as well add alcohol, yeah. yeah that's going to kill you. She ended up being replaced on that film, The Barclays of Broadway, by Ginger Rogers after Garland was suspended by the studio for failing to show up for work due to chronic migraines and substance abuse problems. So basically their response was, fuck it, we'll get someone else. Yeah. She was cast in the film adaptation of Annie Get Your Gun, but was nervous about taking on a role made famous by another actress, in this case Ethel Merman, who was who played Annie on the stage. She had problems with the director, Busby Berkeley, and she was also receiving electroshock therapy to treat her depression. She was fired in 1949 and replaced by Betty Hutton. And I've seen Annie Get Your Gun, and it's pretty good. It's, pretty good. it's an entertaining movie. Nice. It's cute. In 1950, she was cast in another film with Fred Astaire, Royal Wedding, but failed to show up for work again, and MGM suspended her contract. She attempted suicide again after this, nearly cutting her throat with a piece of glass. Whew. After parting ways with MGM for good, she began a concert tour of Britain and Ireland where she played to sold-out crowds throughout the UK. This tour rejuvenated her confidence and helped her realize she was still loved across the world. In 1952, she married Sidney Luft, her tour manager, and her producer. <laughs> they had two kids, Lorna Luft and Joey Luft. Garland and Luft would divorce in 1965. Dude, anybody who showed her the slightest bit of attention, it's really sad. Yeah, it's terrible. In, in 1954, Garland had a career comeback in our third film of the episode, A Star is Born, a remake of the 1937 film of the same name that tells the story of a young singer who is discovered by a famous artist who falls in love with her and then becomes bitter and angry when her career surpasses his own. Garland stars alongside James Mason, and they are a killer pair. Oh, indeed. The film is remade again in 1976 with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, and then again in 2018 with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Whoa! The 1954 version also stars Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, and Tommy Noonan. The film was nominated for six Oscars. Best Actress for Judy Garland. Best Actor for James Mason. Best Art Direction. Best Costume Design. Best Original Score for Ray Heindorf. And Best Original Song for The Man That Got Away. IMDb score 7.6. Rotten Tomatoes score 98%. Eight from me. Judy Garland plays Esther Blodgett, who becomes a famous singer and takes on the name Vicki Lester. 
Garland excelled in A Star is Born because the film mirrors her own life so perfectly that many consider it to be her greatest performance. Yeah. She was, well, born for this. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. <laughs> it is so weird how this m- mirrors her life. It's awesome, man. I, you know, and I like absolutely adored the 2018 one. So I was like, oh, I've got to see. Yeah. So I watched the Streisand and Christ- uh, Christopherson one. Pretty good. Than this one. Really like this one, man. She is. She's like, we, talk, we talked about her voice earlier. This, woo. Oh, this is, the, yeah, pipes. It is man. like, <laughs> womb. You know, it like, like you can feel it in your, your chest. She you know? sings with pain. Yeah. There is heart in there Dude. that, uh, that, she's been through so much shit that we can't understand. And all of that contributes to her voice. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. That's soul. Yeah. Agreed. Ugh. Agree. It's beautiful, and her chemistry with James Mason is, is off the fucking uncanny, charts. Right? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, I I was shocked by this movie. Well, shocked. one thing I loved about the Bradley Cooper one is that he makes Jackson Maine a likable character who you you don't like seeing him destroy himself. You feel bad for him. Yeah, James Mason as oh fuck, it was something Maine. I don't I don't remember his. First I can't name. remember his first name either. But he was <laughs> such a bastard from the beginning. He was basically, you know, straight up just like, I, I'm the best, and I can do whatever I want, and I want you, so come with me. Like, wow. Hard to, hard to root for that guy. Agreed. Agreed. But then, you know, as the film goes along, you get, you get it. You understand why he is the way he is, and you, you get lost in it, and you get lost in their relationship, and you, you feel bad watching him fall as she rises. It's, it's a very interesting film and i'm i'm sure the other two are you know follow the similar story yeah but structure is yeah very similar to a lot of people this is their favorite Mm -hmm. and my grandma for instance loves loves this movie to death yeah (laughs) it's pretty amazing the scene where she's um it's norman main by the way norman main thank you yeah (laughs) norman she uh where she's singing the song about her about her childhood about her vaudevillian parents it's it's her. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly her. It's like a biopic. Even the, you times, know, yeah. Esther Blodgett having to change her name to Vicki Lester. It's Frances Gum having to change her name to Judy Garland. It's the same. This was written for her yeah. straight up. And it's no wonder she did such a great job. Yeah. It it shows the, and yeah, again, I want to point out the chemistry between Mason and and her. I, uh, love, I love James Mason. It. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we'll talk about him another day, right? <laughs> She, she's so, uh, I don't want to just say captivating, but that's what she is in this movie. She's so in her voice that he, he has no choice. And that's kind of how Cooper is with Lady Gaga. Yeah. You just kind of like, whoa, you get kind of get caught staring, which is like, just looks beautiful on the screen when you have one person admiring another doing something beautiful. And that happens a lot, you know, it's just, yeah, this movie, oh man, I cried a couple times, not gonna lie. Garland makes it look so, so effortless, too. Yeah. The way she sings, it's like, it's a part of her. It really is. Oh, oh, oh. It's who she is. When her, when, you know, when she does the, you know, I, I love when a, you know, big female, powerful female voice, you know, is just standing strongly, you know, maybe just one hand on the piano. Uh, and yeah. you can just, you can see their mouth going, oh, well, like shaking. And it's just a sonic boom coming out, you know? <laughs> Obviously, the first person that comes to mind for me is Whitney Houston when she just is a cannon, you know? And that's, like, my one of my favorite things in the world is, like, 
I love music. I love instruments, but I love hearing like a soulful female voice just boom, just fireworks, you know? It's like one of the coolest <laughs> things ever. And this is, you know, this has it <laughs> in this movie. I didn't quite know she could go there. Obviously, I knew she could sing very well, but this movie blew me away. Yeah. With, with, her, with her talent, it blew me away. Oh, hell yeah. And, and yeah, I, again, I think we'll talk one day about Stars Born, like the legacy of that that story in that movie. Now that could be a weird shit Wednesday. I'll it's know, amazing. Just it's those amazing. four movies. And that 2018 one, you know, it's incredible. Incredible stuff from, you know, every single one has made it kind of, you know, uh, apply to today. Uh, there's certain things like, you know, obviously alcoholism is big in it. And it shows alcoholism has big, been big forever and always will be, especially in show business. And yeah, like you said, that's again to Judy Garland's life is alcohol is a big part of it. People torturing her and her being tortured by it. So sad, so devastating. So watching a movie like this is like puts a smile on my face, but it's also devastating. Well, she has her big scene where she tells, <coughs> I don't remember who she's yelling at, but she says, you know, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let this happen. Like I am, you know, she, she takes charge of her life. Yeah. And to me, that was her, that was Judy Garland talking to, to us. Yeah. And to the studio yeah. and saying, I'm not going to let these people control me anymore. I am who I am. I really wish she'd stuck to that because regrettably this is really only the beginning. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought I was very surprised at that movie for a three hour runtime. I was, I was, did you, one thing I thought was really weird about the movie and it's a thing that caused this movie not to do that well at the box office. Uh-huh. A lot of the movie got lost in the editing process. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. They replaced the footage with yes. movie stills. We talked about this. It's, it's odd. It's very strange. It's distracting. It takes yeah. you out of the movie immediately. Yeah. And I'm glad that wasn't throughout, but it's in a significant junk. Yeah. Oof. Which which means you can make it a two and a half hour movie. And yes. You'd, you know, you'd be totally fine. And it's all stuff that you don't really need. Yeah. I think a lot of movies back then were padded. Like they used oh, everything they could. What movie did we, we watched one John Wayne one that was like, whoa, like had some editing issues. It was a real long one. I can't remember which one. That I was just blown away by. The longest day. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, my I god, you that telling was, me about that, that was that was bad. You know, <laughs> shit happens, man. Shit happens. <laughs> not everyone's you know, not everyone's Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be Paul Thomas Anderson to know how to edit a movie. No, 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 it just needs to be. It's all time. Yeah, it's just time <laughs> relevant. I, I wanted to bring something up to you. I was yeah. reading a cool thing on IndieWire. And, well, it wasn't very cool actually. It was a kind of an account of Paul Thomas Anderson and Fiona Apple's like relationship in the late nineties. Yeah. <laughs> she had this quote that I just, uh, lost it over. <laughs> she said, you know, obviously, uh, Paul and I like experimented with drugs and whatnot recreationally. And she's like, I stopped doing drugs partly because of him. She's like, she's like, the reason I stopped doing cocaine was because at one point I was stuck like in a room with him and Quentin watching movies. She's like, and it was like the worst night of my life. She's like, if anyone wants to quit doing cocaine, get stuck in a room with those two assholes. <laughs> Hats off to you, Fiona. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> Fuck. That's fantastic. I mean, I would, I, you know, there's, there's some, there's rules that I go by, you know, there's one that, um, another podcast, the big picture, they talk about no, uh, I do no white condiments, no white drugs. Yeah. And, you know, cocaine falls under white drugs. I don't do that stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And uh, I, but I, I would never do it with those two. <laughs> my God, I don't want to be trapped in that ego sandwich. Oh my God, you, I oh that'd be the worst thing ever, man. <laughs> Especially in the nineties, Christ. No thanks. I thought that was hilarious. You, yeah, you know, you get that. You understand. You've seen their movies. Jesus, I can only imagine. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a nightmare. <laughs> Speaking of nightmares, yeah. So. Garland nearly won the Oscar for A Star is Born, but she lost to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl ah! by only six votes. Son of a bitch. One of the closest votes in Oscar history. Regrettably, A Star is Born failed to turn a profit for Warner Brothers, so Judy's uh, comeback vehicle didn't exactly take off. Mm-hmm. Garland only made a handful of films after that, one of them being our fourth film of the episode, 1961's Judgment at Nuremberg a biopic that tells the story of four Nazi judges who were tried for war crimes by an American tribunal at the Nuremberg Trials in 1948. It was adapted from a TV movie of the same name, featuring some of the same cast. The film also stars Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Richard Widmark, Marlena Dietrich, Maximilian Schell, Montgomery Clift, and William Shatner. It won two Oscars, Best Actor for Maximilian Schell, well fucking deserved, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It was nominated for an additional nine Oscars. Best Picture, Best Actor for Spencer Tracy, Best Supporting Actor for Montgomery Clift, Best Supporting Actress for Judy Garland, Best Director for Stanley Kramer, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Film Editing. IMDb score 8.2, Rotten Tomatoes 91%, and I give this film a solid 10. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, this is the highest rated for me as well. I give it a 9 a second watching could definitely give it a 10. I know it's very rare for you to give a this, 10 on a first viewing. This so. rarely happens, maybe like once or twice. I think you even said to me, like, you don't like to do that. I don't. You prefer to watch something twice before you give it a 10. I typically, I 10 is not, 10 is a score reserved for me anyway for very personal movies, for f- movies I've grew up with, movies I've loved forever. So for me to just throw a 10 on a first timer like this is pretty crazy. And, but no other score would do. I I was incredibly moved by this. I've done that on two movies that we've done a podcast that we've since filmed guys and so we've been doing the podcast. I've given two movies a ten on a first time. Do you remember which ones they are? And one of them is Itchy the Killer. Yes, because we just did that. And the other one maybe the thing? Assault on Precinct 13. Assault on Precinct. Because that was my first time seeing it. Yeah. And I was like, ten motherfucker. <laughs> and I stand by that, you know? But I yeah, I'm I'm with you. I try I I I would like to see it twice to really know what meaning. Also, it could go obviously from a seven to an eight, or seven to a nine, or or a nine to an eight. Go backwards. Yeah, uh, you know that's just that's that's the beauty of watching things twice. But I love when someone's so impacted by something that they're like, "Dude, you told me, you text me, like I, I give it a ten, man. Like it's it's just brilliant." And I agree with you. It it is a like masterpiece movie. One of those. There's a reason it's that long. That It's one of those, you know? Yeah, you don't feel it. No, 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 no. Garland plays Irene Hoffman, a Jewish woman who returns to Nuremberg to testify against the Nazi judges who destroyed her life and sent her best friend to his death. And it is a really solid performance, like unlike anything she's ever done. And I really I wish she'd done more work like this, because this is... Everybody in this gives their A-game. Maximilian Schell, I'd never seen anything he'd been in. Oh my God. Jesus. A man in such a dark position to defend the Nazis. Yeah. 
And not just that, but to defend the German people at a time in, in history where it really, you know, they're going to be condemned for the actions of the few. But he's so adamant on saying, you know, like, this is not who we are, but I have to do this. Yeah. It's such an incredible performance. This was my introduction to Spencer Tracy, yeah. Burt Lancaster. Yeah. And, oh, my God, I have so many more movies to, to seek out now. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those uh, gateway movies, if you will, where, it, it, yeah, you know those names in your head, but you're like, ah, shit, I saw them. Yeah. I see what the big deal is now. Now I need to do my homework. My God. Isn't that a good feeling? It's an incredible feeling. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah, pretty awesome. They use actual footage of, of uh, the concentration camps in the movie. when the Which is a big part of how impactful, yeah. The camps, when they were liberated, uh, Allied forces filmed the camps to make sure this was documented, that they couldn't sweep this under the rug and, and try to convince people that this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And there, you see images of emaciated people, of just trenches of dead bodies, of ovens with bones in them. And it hurts. As a human being, it hurts to see that. And this film does not shy away. No. It, it needed to show you everything. And even the movie, Maximilian Schell, when he's giving his uh, rebuttal to that, he says, like, it's not fair that you showed that. Because that's not who we are. I, as a German, I am appalled, and I will never forgive my country for that. Like, it is, god damn, there are so many in, in, like incredibly moving moments in this film. Monumental, yeah. Oh, that man. affects so many people. Seriously, yeah. It's, yeah. Without a doubt. It's crazy, man. Really glad this was on the uh, on the docket. Oh, for uh, sure. And I'm yeah, sh- uh, shocked me. You know, I was blown away by how much I liked it. Even when you said you gave it a 10, I hadn't seen it yet. I hadn't watched it. And I was like, I'm still going to go into it thinking like, just go into it open-minded. Don't don't think that I'm going to like adore it right As away. As well you should. That's how you yeah. should go in every movie. And But I did. <laughs> but I did. Jesus Christ. I Yeah, I would say that is the best one of these four. Oh, yes. And then Stars Born, and then Wizard of Oz, which is crazy to say. <laughs> Didn't think I ever would do that, but... And, and then my fourth would be Mimi in St. Louis. With this one, Judy Garland in this, again, she delivers a hell of a performance. Yes. Refusing to be battered into lying on trial. And she tells, you know, you can scream at me all you want, it's not going to change what happened. I love that. Incredible. Standing up against the Nazi judges who destroyed her, sent her best friend to his death just because he was Jewish. Yeah. And just the fact that she has the guts to go confront them is, is it's remarkable. And I couldn't say enough about this movie. It's it really surprised me and I I absolutely adored it. Oh man. And it was really tough to get too. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a gem. It's a fucking gem. So Garland began appearing in live television specials as early as 1955. In 1956, she began a four-week contract to sing in Vegas for 55 grand a week, making her the highest-paid entertainer in Vegas at the time. In 1959, she was diagnosed with acute hepatitis, and she was told she had five years or less to live. If she did survive, she'd be an invalid and would never sing again. She initially was relieved at the diagnosis, claiming, quote, the pressure was off me for the first time in my life. Wow. To have that reaction to a death sentence. She would recover from this over the next few months, and she did indeed perform again many times. 
1961, Garland worked out a deal with CBS for a number of new TV specials. The first was called The Judy Garland Show and featured Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. The success of this special led CBS to offer Garland $24 million for a weekly series. Garland, being in debt to the IRS and practically broke, accepted. The Judy Garland Show only lasted one season of 26 episodes and was canceled in 1964, mostly because it was destroyed in the ratings by Bonanza on NBC. And this was back when there were three channels. Mm -hmm. During this time... Garland had an affair with actor Glenn Ford, her biographer Gerald Clark, Glenn Ford's son, Peter, and singer Mel Torme. Holy hell, guys. After her divorce from Sidney Luft in May 1965, Garland married her tour promoter, Mark Heron, in November 1965, aboard a freighter off the coast of Hong Kong. They were divorced four years later in January of 1969. Good God. Afterwards, Garland married her final husband, nightclub manager Mickey Deans, in March of 1969. It just, <laughs> she couldn't be alone. Not, she didn't know how to be no, alone. No, not, not even that. Not even, like, like marrying, divorcing and remarrying, going through all this, like, work. It's like, just, just date. I don't think she knew how. Crazy, She man. was an all-or-nothing person. All-in, yeah, just extreme yeah. person, yeah. It's really sad. Yeah, it sucks. I, these guys, like, they knew what they were getting into here. They, oh, yeah. they all used her. They all wanted her money, her fame. They all wanted a piece of her. On June 22nd, 1969, Deans found Judy Garland dead in the bathroom of their rented house in London. She had overdosed on barbiturates. She was 47 years old. Her doctor noted that there was a prescription bottle of 25 pills half empty and another 100-count bottle that was unopened. The death was ruled accidental. In 2019, a biopic was made about the last year of Garland's life, simply titled Judy. Oscar winner Renee Zellweger starred as Judy Garland as she performs a series of sold-out concerts in London in 1968. The film does not portray Louis B. Mayer and MGM Studios in a flattering light, nor does it shy away from Garland's substance abuse problems or confidence issues. We see her rocky relationship with then-husband Mickey Deans, as well as her ex-husband Sidney Luft, and her dedication to her children. The film also stars Jesse Buckley, Finn Whitrock, Rufus Sewell, Michael Gambon, Darcy Shaw, and Richard Cordry. Renee Zellweger won her second Oscar for her portrayal of Judy Garland, and the film was also nominated for Best Makeup. IMDb score 6.9, Rotten Tomatoes score 82%. I give it an 8. I really like this movie, and this movie is the reason I picked this episode for the schedule. Yeah, about, I it came out about a year ago. Which is pretty crazy to think about. The uh, movie with Renee Zellweger. Uh, unbelievable performance. Um, you know, and she... Renee won the Oscar, yeah, this past... Just last month. She, you know, had a very interesting speech and all that. But her portrayal of... of her portrayal of Judy Garland was, was stellar. And I still... That movie, even though I don't love it... I give it an eight as well. I don't love it. It is, it is good. It... it there's still kind of ingrained in my head, which is, which is pretty powerful, you know, for a movie to be able to do that. I've only seen it once. Um, I, I do want to buy it actually. I want to own Judy to Renee Zellweger because I kind of want to own all these movies. This is kind of a fascinating piece to me of not just, uh, of film guys now, or of course of film history, but this is something that, uh, I know my mom, you know, enjoyed her career when she was younger 
and I, I know like your grandmother loves some of her performances. Uh, she's kind of before we knew what female empowerment was, she was doing roles that were trying to do that, even though she was not ever able to be herself or be free, you know? Yeah. And so there's, it's gonna be hard to say. It's like, you need people like Judy to go through what they went through for women to now know how not to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, someone that stands out, I, I've always heard stories about Pam Greer and how, cause she's kind of gone through like the whole, <laughs> uh, the whole shit storm of, you know, being a star in the seventies and then coming back in the nineties. And she always, you know, had people with her in certain, you know, certain meetings and, and whatnot and always was like protective of herself cause she's a female and this and that. And like, I was always like, I'm going to get what I deserve this and that. I'm going to get what I want out of this movie. And I just encourage, you know, it, you know, when, when you're, you're watching these movies or like someone like Judy, this woman did not have like any say no. in how her career went. Not just her career, her life. Her life. Yeah. From her, her career yeah. was her life. Like that's how it was all she knew. Show yeah. business was all she knew. People just sold her for shit, you know, and just to get their quick buck. You know, like you said, you just get a piece of her. It's really fucked up. It's really sad. And this like cannot happen today. Oh no. Cannot happen. And that is a good thing. People have fucking tried and thankfully that's all coming out. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. It's just so sad that you like need ex- horrible, horrible examples to know how to not do things. That's fucked up, but that's how you know. That's how far we are. There's thousands of thousands of years of human behavior that I'd. <laughs> I'm not an expert on. I just know how messed up her life was and how people treated her, and uh, you know, bring that to light and bring to light some of her her performances. It sucks, man. It sucks. Like knowing that she never. Got to do what she wanted to do. We don't even know what she wanted to do. Exactly. What she... Exactly. I mean, Who she was. She definitely... Her name was changed. You know, yeah, it's just so sad. It's just, it's fake. It's fucking fake. It sounds fake, you but know? at the same time, I am thankful we got to see her. We got to know who she was. Just her voice alone changed. So I know, like, for the gay community, I know she's a very significant yeah. uh, part of gay, That's, like, gay identity. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the term friend of Dorothy is a, was an early term to describe a homosexual because she cared about that community. She all, she wanted, she loved everybody. She, cause she understood struggle. She understood being chained to something you hated. She understood wanting to be better, wanting the, the world to be better for her. And I love that people rallied behind her. I love that she still has her lifelong fans. Her daughter, Liza Minnelli, has since carried that mantle of, you know, being a friend of the gay community and just being an icon of music. It's it's pretty impressive uh, what she was able to accomplish despite being just destroyed shut mentally down, shut and down physically from the, the beginning. Yeah. So props. I mean, Hell yeah, props. Go. That's that's mainly what I was saying. I rambled a lot, but the. I'm so, you know, into obviously the the amount of women that are able to write and direct movies today in 2020 is just like it's, you know, it's awesome. The the more and more opportunities we have for more and more people to create, the more and more different kinds of movies we'll have. Ha, ah, what a crazy idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we want. And you have to yeah, you got like Judy Garland's a fucking pioneer. She's a woman being like thrown around like a rag doll and still like with a goddamn smile on her face. And still pushing through it, like you said, being a leader in you know the the uh, gay community, and that's just there's just 
nothing more you can say, but that's, that's, a, that holds so much value being a leader and being someone that people can lean on is holds so much value, you know? And that's what Judy, Judy is, was, and still is <laughs> timeless. Yeah, yeah. She's a timeless, she, heroes get remembered, legends never die. You know, that's, that's Judy's a legend. And that concludes our look into the life of silver screen star, Judy Garland. She never had control over her own life. She was used by everyone who knew her. And she was one of the most talented singers ever to grace Hollywood. So tragic. Again, if there are any of her films you wanted us to shine a light on, don't hesitate to contact us and we'll look into the film, possibly make it an episode in the future. There will not be an episode this Friday, as is the tradition with Weird Shit Wednesday. These episodes are particularly demanding in research and prep, so we just do the one. We may have something special for you on Sunday, though, so hang in there. Before we get into this week in film, I'd like to clarify what we've been teasing for these past few episodes regarding a new format. We realized just how many horror films are out there. Thousands, and not all of them are good. What kind of horror movie podcast would we be if we just did the good ones? So, we wiped our calendar clean, and I spent two or three weeks building a carefully categorized list of every horror movie I could find. I call it the Book of Filmgasm. This list is constantly updating with new releases, old gems, and every shitty sequel made under the sun. Each of these films is numbered 1 to, right now I think it's 1160. Huh. Using a random number generator, we pick five numbers, and whichever movies those five numbers are assigned to become the next five episodes of the show. Yes. The only catch is we have to have access to it, so if we draw something that's incredibly rare and only available by buying a $50 DVD on eBay, we're going to skip it and Girl. do it in the future when it's easier to find. Exactly. But for the most part, this will be how we pick the episodes from now on. We think it'll broaden our horizons, provide more entertaining episodes for you guys. We're probably tired of hearing us gush about all the classics we've done so far. And there will still be great movies in there, but there's a lot of shit films too, so be prepared. Could be anything. Even we don't know what's coming. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, week to week. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It'll be great fun. Yeah, super excited. So now let's see what happened this week in film. Get ready to cry, moviegoers. As of this recording... Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Christopher Heavju, Olga Kirilenko, and Idris Elba have all tested positive for coronavirus. Hopefully they are isolating themselves and on their way to recovery. I know Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have now left quarantine, so thankfully they're all right. Speaking of coronavirus, every major release in the next month, or well, few months, has been delayed indefinitely, including A Quiet Place 2, Mulan, The Lovebirds, Fast and Furious 9, The New Mutants, The Woman in the Window, and Black Widow. By the time this episode is released, there will likely be more. Every movie and TV production has shut down due to fears of contracting this virus, and movie theaters around the world are closing their doors indefinitely. It's scary times. Scary times. But brutal, brutal. I get why they're doing this, and I hope this will you know, start to get better. I know it's a selfish reason, but yeah, I want my movies back. No, I'm yeah. not going to apologize for that. No, everyone's affected. Their hobbies are affected. Their financial situations affected. Their job, everything. So it's okay to complain, man. Yes, I'm with you. Yeah, fuck. It does suck because you like when shitty stuff happens, like uh, you know, like societal stuff that happens that's shitty. You want movies to go to escape. Yes, or you want to go watch basketball to escape. All that stuff has also been taken away from us. So it's just frustrating, <sighs> you know. Frustrating for everybody, man. 
Moving on from coronavirus to a lighter subject, sexual predator Harvey Weinstein has been sentenced to 23 years in prison for sexual assault. Mm. So the motherfucker's <laughs> going away. Yep. Thank God. Thank the Lord. We needed something good. Disney's live-action Peter Pan remake has found its Peter and Wendy in newcomers Alexander Milani and Ever Anderson. Okay. Pete's Dragon director David Lowry is set to direct. And here's hoping it's not just two hours of the Native American scene from Peter Pan, because that would be horrible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm... Peter Pan's the story that I don't think has ever been done right, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with this. Same, same. Remember when Pan came out like four or five, four years ago? Oh, that movie was so bad. You saw it? I watched it. I didn't see it. I was going to say, I didn't it. know anybody who went to see it in theaters. I didn't. I, oh, wait, I got it in the mail through Netflix. It got panned. <laughs> Why were they singing Nirvana? I don't know. <sighs> I haven't seen it. I don't know. Why not just sack up and make Hugh Jackman Captain Hook? Why Blackbeard? Why, why did, nothing, nothing in that movie makes any sense. That's why I love Hook. Yeah, Hook's really cool. Hook's fun. Very fun. Finally, Scream 5 is in the works, and the team behind last year's sleeper hit Ready or Not has signed on to direct. Here's hoping Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette are worthy successors to helm Wes Craven's signature franchise. I love the Scream movies, and I think these guys are very interesting picks. Fuck yeah. So bring it on. I'm super down. I think I think Scream is, yeah, it's like prime time right now for to be like really popular. I don't get, like, I like the franchise, but are they are they going to keep going with like Nev Campbell and like oh. that whole story? Because there's only so many more shocks you can do with oh that person connected to Sydney killed somebody yeah yeah again yeah no I think I, something new how many yeah. secret brothers is she gonna have? <laughs> Sorry, Caleb and Josh, I'm gonna get some angry text for that one. That's all for this week, folks. Hope you didn't cry too much, and we hope you learned something about the woman behind Dorothy. Next week is the first pick of our uh, bunch from the Book of Filmgasm. It's a 2019 Netflix release featuring Jake Gyllenhaal, Tony Collette, Renee Russo, and John Malkovich as players in the contemporary art world of Los Angeles. The film is Velvet Buzzsaw, one I've never seen and didn't plan to until, I, until it was foretold by the good book. That'll be next week, listeners, and let's depart with these wise words from Judy Garland herself. Always be a first-rate version of yourself instead of a second-rate version of somebody else. Mm-hmm.